Hi, I'm Liza Caspona, Managing Editor, Retail Dive. Uh, some of our team, including me, spent the first part of this week up in New York for the National Retail Federation's Big Show. So I have with me today the rest of the team that was at the conference. Uh, let's go ahead and go around and say hi. Hi, I'm Caroline, and I'm an Associate Editor on the team. And this is Daphne. I'm a Senior Reporter. Great. Uh, so let's jump right in. Uh, this year's show felt like it was a lot about stores, about how retailers are reimagining stores, how digital brands are deploying stores, how tech is transforming stores. But really, it all comes down to something you said to me, Daphne, when we were wrapping up all of our show coverage, that the best invention retail may have turns out to be brick and mortar stores, totally. which I'm not sure anyone was expecting. <laughs> so a lot of our coverage is about how overstored many retailers are. But what really came to the fore this show this year was that that's not really the whole picture. There are, in fact, retailers out there using stores in smart ways and creating unique shopping experiences. And as part of our trip up for the conference this year, we also did some store visits. So I thought we'd start there and talk a little bit about what are the most interesting stores we saw while we were in New York. And I think Daphne and Caroline, you both went to the two Nordstrom locals that are open in the city. So why don't we start there with what you saw? Yeah, I mean, so talking about retailers that are opening stores, I mean, Nordstrom in September opened these two locals. Um, I went to the one on the upper east side and i think caroline went to the one in the west village yep. and then of course they opened their humongous seven-story women's flagship store up on west 57th street and broadway and it sounds from our earlier discussions caroline that we had some very different experiences at the locals mine was pretty busy on the upper east side what about you yeah so i went on saturday evening i mean it was like 5 30 p.m and it was pretty empty. I mean, it was very pretty. It was shiny. They had the Taylor area um, that they talked about a lot. They had the buy online, pick up in store area, the returns area. Everything was very pretty. It's just they didn't have any customers in store. So it was kind of an awkward shopping experience walking around, you know, by yourself in this empty space. But what was your experience like? Yeah, there's not a lot of merchandise, even in mine. Um, how many packages did you have? Like the pickup? The whole wall was basically filled of packages. Um, so that was nice. It seems like maybe people are just going to the store, they're ordering online and picking up, and they don't necessarily need to walk around and shop and stuff. I'm wondering if Saturday evening wouldn't be a high time. I was there on the Upper East Side. It was Tuesday, sort of midday. It was definitely hopping. Same thing, wall crammed with packages to be picked up. And it was fairly busy. People sort of came in regularly, seemed familiar with the place, seemed to know the associates. This beautiful, happy, huge golden doodle came bouncing in at one point with his owner. And I would say two or three people came in dropping off apparel to be given to housing works that Nordstrom has partnered with up there. It just kind of had this feeling that it was a fixture in the neighborhood. But, you know, it was midday. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that most of the people were gravitating toward the pickup area or, or were there still consumers who were browsing and going online? There was no browsing. Um, I mean, I personally did see an outfit that I would have loved to have just had for myself, but I wasn't there. <laughs> 
the perils of being a retail reporter. Yes, <laughs> I was not there to shop for myself. Um, it was very well put together, but there was a sort of young mother who came in with, put her whole pram into the store and was dropping off a return and was very happy to find out that they also take Nordstrom rack returns, which Nordstrom full line stores do not do. And I don't think, I think rack stores will only take full line returns if it's something that they can sell in the rack store. So it was just kind of funny to see that problem solving happening first for someone who was maybe a little bit busy that day with the baby. Because one of the things I think is interesting about that concept for Nordstrom is they really are, they're trying to think about it differently, right? It's not supposed to be a traditional retail experience as you would have if you walked into one of their, say, the flagship on 57th Street or the men's store on 57th Street. Um, It's interesting that they're, you know, they're trying to connect to the community in that way. They're trying to offer some more of those services. It sounds like it may be working. It's hard to tell in, you know, two store visits, but um, it's interesting that you had that sense of community while you were there, Daphne. Definitely. Definitely. You can see how it would work. I mean, even their tailoring services, I don't remember the price points, but um, theoretically, if they can make enough money um, just through those kinds of services, just kind of running a business in that way, the the customer connection, this kind of intimate connection with an area of the city that is a likely Nordstrom customer could really pay off. It's just, as you say, it's just kind of early days. You sort of did a little bit of a department store tour, not shocking given that this is one of your coverage areas, but you were in the show fields as well, weren't you? Which is, I don't even know if you would call that a department store. It's a re-envisioned, I mean, you spoke at length with one of the execs running that store. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like? So show fields, calling it a department store is a stretch, but you can see how it would be true. It's a very funky building. It used to be a veterinary hospital, it turns out, a long, long time ago, I think. 100-year-old building, lots of art, intimate spaces. They have brands coming in. They're emerging brands, but they have turnover every three or six months. The, the, The tenants kind of do these short stints to get information about how people interact with their goods in a physical setting. It's definitely really fun place to shop, even if you're just browsing. It's an experience. It's the kind of thing that someone like Doug Stevens is talking about. It's 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 an art gallery. It has sort of an art gallery feel. It has a very New York art gallery feel. Um, cutting edge avant-garde. The elevator is an art installation of some kind all by itself. Kind of spacey and cool. And so you can definitely see how a place like Showfields, you know, feels like the, the near future of retail. I also went to Nordstrom, which is an actual department store, and that feels less avant-garde. It almost feels like they have brought this 19th century or even mid-20th century concept into the 21st century, but it's recognizably a department store. It's not a funky, you know, New York art gallery. It's a department store. When you and I were there one evening for an event, 
the Nordstrom store does feel sophisticated in a way that, and a little bit different than, you know, to your point, it's a 21st century department store, not a, you know, 1920s department store, but there were, you know, there's Instagrammable components of the store and the front of the store looks sort of futuristic. So it evokes some of what you're describing about Showfields, but maybe not to the same level. Well, and actually they have, they Nordstrom actually also has art um, for sale from contemporary artists up on their walls in certain areas. And the interesting thing about Nordstrom or one of the interesting things is just the very many pockets of just places to hang out, not just shop. There are places where you can grab a drink. There are little tables where you can sit with a friend with your drinks. There are couches and nooks and the styling areas have very comfortable seating. And I think you can also get drinks delivered to those areas too. But you could almost spend a Saturday night at Nordstrom in New York. Didn't you feel like that? I did. And I and we've talked about this. And I think you mentioned this in the story that you did on Nordstrom coming out of the show. I think putting a bar in the shoe department is the single greatest thing I've ever seen. Um, but yeah. it, it, uh, it feels very social. And it, which is, you know, there was a time when shopping was an activity people did. You might go out with your friends for brunch, and then maybe you went shopping. In recent years, I'm not sure that that was a department store that first occurred to people. But it you're right that those spaces feel very welcoming. They feel like you could walk in with a friend and have a experience with that friend that isn't just about, you know, a, a transactional shopping trip. And it's all kinds of styles. I mean, there are some areas that are just kind of more sophisticated. There are other areas like the Nike and the Burberry areas. Those kind of are sort of all out funky and yet it's very pulled together. It's cohesive. It's not, it doesn't feel like a jumble of styles or anything like that. It's kind of an exciting place to be, but you know, it, it kind of like the locals, it remains to be seen what that does for Nordstrom and even for, you know, New York retail or department store retail. I was just going to say that. I mean, I think you and I both had some conversations at the conference about it's so pretty, but Caroline's point about the Nordstrom local downtown, if there's never customers in there, that's a problem for them. <laughs> now it's right. early, it is early days. So it'll be interesting to watch and see how that does because it's visually they're there. It's really interesting uh, in all these locations. One question I have about Nordstrom is that men's store across the street it seemed like a great idea when the men's store opened, but now that it's there, sort of, it's almost like a man cave across from this fabulous new store. I wonder if at some point they might kind of move over and make a little bit of room for men's in in the seventh story flagship and, and not run that separate across the street men's store. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Caroline, you also did, you were looking a lot at experiential stores while you were up there. Um, you want to talk a little bit about some of what you saw 
I think you saw some yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. So I went to a Petco and it was one of the Petcos with the Just Food for Dogs installations in it. So it almost looks like a Whole Foods in there. They have a whole kitchen and then a glass case and you can pick up your fresh food for dogs. Um, and it's really catering to the new trend of people viewing their dogs as a family member. So it's really looking at that crowd. Another thing that was in that store that isn't that experiential, but I thought was clever, was they had these, um, it says accidents happen, and it's like poo bags and cleanup things, which again is catering to that whole movement of people delaying having kids or delaying having marriage and looking at their pets more as a family member. So it really encourages those in-store experiences for these pet owners. And then I went to Soho and I went to Burrow House, which is a furniture direct-to-consumer retailer. And they, inside of their store, they have a movie theater and you can sit down on the Burrow couches and the Burrow chairs and really experience what it would be like when you have this thing in your home. Because when you go to a traditional um, furniture showroom, it's like these little vignettes, but you can't truly picture how you're going to use the couch or what it's going to be like when you're binge watching Netflix for however many hours. So I thought that was really interesting. And then I went to the Puma flagship, which just opened in September, and they had the Puma and You station, which is a customization bar, so you can do embroidery, patchwork, 3D knitting. Um, The other thing that I thought was really cool in that store was the in-store simulator. So you could go in this box um, and lace up your soccer cleats and kick a soccer ball around to see what it's actually like to use these shoes outside of the store. They also had a coffee shop in the middle of its second floor, which I thought was surprising to have in the Puma flagship. But I mean, (laughs) they're obviously targeting a customer. Well, maybe the cyclists. I think cyclists are famous for, it's like, you know, cycling, sleep, and coffee is their thing, so. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And there's a couple interesting things in there. When you were talking about the Borough House, it reminded me, One of the panels that I attended at the conference was Alexandra Waldman from Mm -hmm. Universal Standard with Mickey Onbrall from Bonobos. Uh, And Alex was talking about Universal Standard has started opening some stores in select markets. And one of the things they're doing is essentially, she said they're like apartments. So you go in for an appointment with a stylist and you feel like you're in someone's home and you're trying things on. And again, you know, would you like a cup of tea? Would you like a glass of champagne, whatever, you know, your thing is, but it's like you're hanging out. And there's this interesting, there's like two things happening where you've got, let me evoke for you the feeling of you're at home and comfortable and not in a shopping environment. (laughs) And then at the other end of the spectrum is what you're talking about with Puma, which is these like high tech, that is not like my living room (laughs) at all. Um, it's just an interesting sort of bifurcation that fits for the brands that are doing what they're doing, but it's interesting. Well, and that's, um, that home thing is Ron Johnson's thing too, where he's now his enjoy, his company enjoy is basically it's a service where, um, you buy new tech, you want some help with it. It's sort of like the Best Buy geek squad. Um, and he saw, he almost, the way he was talking, I felt like he was basically saying that people's homes is almost like a retail store. The Mm -hmm. experiences though, like, I don't think there exists a website. I don't care how like nice it is that, that where, you know, we would ever talk about a website the way we just talked about these spaces, you know, I mean, you go into these, especially for stores that are making an effort, 
there's there's something to talk about whereas with a website there just really isn't yeah and it's kind of nice to see some of these are traditional retailers and some of them are maybe their showrooms but there is something about that that's interesting for the consumer which is really what it's about right if you can't get customers engaged with your brand maybe they're not buying in that store maybe they are maybe they're picking something up maybe they're trying the couch um, but you're still engaging with the customer because eventually it comes down to does that customer want to give you their money for something? But um, it's been interesting to see that development over time. And on the tech end of stuff. Yeah, so Puma also had a lot of tech things that were consumer facing. Um, they had a virtual mirror in their fitting room. So you could essentially select what you were about to try on and then see a product description for that. So you could view it in different colors or whatever, or you could see similar products. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. So if they didn't have something maybe on the show floor, you could see what they have online, try on what you have, and then maybe make that other purchase online. Um, Which is similar. Isn't that similar to what they're doing with the Sephora try on technology yeah. where you walk in front of a camera and can change like yeah, the whole look of your the face. Whole AR, yeah. And then something that doesn't even feel that high tech, but I thought it was super interesting was they had a light switch. So you could see what you were trying on in different light settings. So you could see, what it looked like when it was sunny out, if you were at the gym or if you were on a night run. It just, it's a very small thing, but it made a big difference when I was trying on a garment. It's like, what do I look like with this lipstick at my, you know, girlfriend's house or something? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, they're trying to get through the, like, what was it? It used to be you would buy something and get home and the, like the, the mythology yeah. was you, you looked good in the dressing room and terrible at home. So they're getting around that with technology, which is really smart. You don't get the regret. <laughs> the customer gets a full picture of what something's going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's interesting too, right? So the tech piece of this, there's the consumer facing tech. There was a lot of, I saw some stores down at the Oculus uh, down by the World Trade Center, where there's a lot of the cameras in stores that are more about tracking behavior within the store how people are engaging, whether they're purchasing, how long they're standing at a display, all that kind of tech, which is very low key. You know, I had to have it pointed out to me. It's this very subtle, and it was in several stores that I was in, these like very subtle cameras that essentially clock you the minute you come in, not for security purposes, but just for the intel that the store can gain about your shopping patterns. I'm interested to see how that develops. I mean, what do they do with all that data? It's a lot of data. It's always the trick, um, but it's the, you know, behind the scenes tech. A lot of people talked about dwell time at, in stores, just trying to capture the kind of engagement that seems really easy on a website, you know, how long you linger on a product or whatever. And then the other tech that I was hearing about is just as physical retail and online retail continue to merge where there's all this you know in-store pickup of online orders and fulfillment from stores and all this stuff that you really have to have your act together on the back end or people are going to be disappointed either because you don't have their package ready or because the shelf is empty because you did have someone else's package ready well and customer expectations matter a lot right i mean i think i told both of you this the day that I was down at the Oculus, I actually had a chance to see two of the Amazon Go stores. They happen to have two in that area. 
One is in the mall and one is above ground on the other side of the World Trade Center Memorial. And the one in the mall, the tech wasn't working when we went to go. So there's all these people standing outside who can't get in because there was something wrong, which, you know, happens. But someone's experience of technology when it doesn't work sticks with them. Um, Yeah. Well, especially since this is the supposed to be the premier our premier example of technology in physical retail, right? Yeah. And it was interesting. The other store was working. So the technology was up and running and some people were going in and out. But on my way into and out of the store to buy a bottle of water, there were crowds of customers or potential customers, I should say, because sort of standing in the doorway asking a lot of questions about what was happening. Like, what is the store? What do you mean I have to download an app? All I want to do is buy a bottle of water. You know, asking other customers who were leaving the store, you know, how does this work? What were you doing? So there may be a learning curve still. And, you know, that area of New York, there's a lot of people that go through there. There's a lot of workers in and out of buildings. There's a lot of tourists coming through. Maybe that's part of it. But there seemed to be a little bit of a barrier. It seemed a little too high tech for some of those customers. My experience was pretty seamless once I went into buy water, once I got to the store that was functional. I was actually at the Amazon bookstore in Columbus Circle. That didn't have the same kind of tech innovation feeling. The, the biggest innovation there is that they, they set the books so that the covers are facing instead of the spines facing you. That seems to be an Amazon books approach. I did hear someone being reassured that if they're a Prime member, they would get some advantage of some kind. So certainly Amazon's Prime is is probably one of, you know, its biggest asset in retail right now. Fair. So one of the other things that I think is great about conferences is the chance to sort of see what's next, what's interesting, what the next disruptor might be, or just what's out there that you haven't yet seen And the timing of this particular conference at the beginning of the year gives us a chance to think about like, okay, what are we going to watch in 2020? So I wanted to know sort of from you guys, what was your either biggest surprise or what you're going to be watching coming out of this show and headed into the new year? Uh, Do you want to start, Caroline? Yeah. So I thought sustainability was a really big topic this year. I mean, I know it was big last year, but it seemed even more of a focus this year, just looking at the panels looking who they brought to um, speak. They had execs from Rent the Runway, Fred Up, Latote, or um, Rebag, or even just the traditional retailers getting more into sustainable materials. Um, West Elm this week announced that they were going to get more into hemp products. Um, and then West Elm also mentioned that they partnered with Furnish last year, which they thought was a surprising thing. It's Furnish is a, a furniture rental company, and they thought it was going to stem their sales, but it actually hasn't. The sustainability thing is always really interesting to me because it's been something people talked about for a long time. I've been in and out of the retail space for a long time and sustainability has sort of always been a thing. It does feel a little bit different right now to me when you start to see consumers actually purchasing, right? Consumers often said they wanted one thing and then didn't always follow through with Mm -hmm. their spend. Right. And there's some question, I heard some economists speak in some lunch sessions at the conference who were questioning whether people will actually spend the way they say they will about sustainability, but it's clearly important to brands to represent themselves that way and to authentically do those things now. 
which I think is really interesting. It'll be cool to see what happens this year with that. Right. Yeah, definitely. I'm starting to look into this a little bit when it comes to fast fashion right now. Just there, there seems to be a, uh, just less interest in the idea of owning clothes for a short amount of time that you then have to replace by buying more. Right. And the, the Rent the Runway uh, CEO, Jennifer Hyman, actually said something about consumers now are wanting to access clothing or um, products rather than owning them. There's less pride in ownership. So that could actually swing both ways. It could be that if you're going to, you know, own something for only a short time, you might as well rent it. But that I think there might be a, a little bit of a movement toward spending more money on higher quality things and then having sort of more timeless, less trendy, you know, ephemeral styles. So, yeah. Right. So we'll see what, you know, how it really materializes. I'm interested to see also how that interplays a little with the re-commerce secondhand sort of push, right? Because renting, is, not wanting to own something is different than well, I want to own the thing, but I don't actually want to pay as much money price, or yeah. I don't want to buy a bunch of fast fashion that falls apart. There, there's some overlap there, but it's also right. not exactly the same. Yeah, I'm not sure I've yet heard the like exact description that helps me understand <laughs> the one person that's doing all of these things, even though I'm sure many people are. I have also been someone who was curious about rental and has bought secondhand clothing before. So but they get lumped together a lot. We talked about this coming out of a panel where they're not exactly the same thing, but Rent the Runway, for example, is now also going to sell their used items through, is it Nordstrom? Nordstrom Rack, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and what does it do to your brand? If you're pushing resale or everyone's getting more into resale, what does it do to your brand to know that those secondhand items don't you know, look as good when they're sort of worn? So, you know, maybe some of the lower quality items are not going to be produced even just for that reason, just because it becomes impossible. Either you can't resell it because it doesn't present well enough or, you know, it could be kind of a brand killer if your stuff is showing up in in secondhand stores looking a little shabby, you know? Yeah. Uh, and Daphne, you had some other sort of big takeaways you th- said you were going to bring into 2020 with you, didn't you? Uh, I think we were talking about uh, e-commerce. People weren't as bullish on e-commerce, I think, as we had, you had expected. Oh, yes. In fact, I think I mentioned this was my big takeaway, um, which is that there was this sort of sense that e-commerce, I don't know, that it's almost been a disappointment the Casper story where they had revealed how unprofitable they've been and how high their customer acquisition costs have been um, because they filed for an IPO and revealed just statistics that they don't usually reveal. There was a sense, I don't know if it was because of the Casper or if it's happening with other investors and companies too, that e-commerce alone is just not going to cut it digital advertising isn't effective enough. I just, I came away feeling a lot of upbeat buzz around physical retail and and brick and mortar stores from that side of things. But then also the sense that 
pure plays in e-commerce need to either have their own stores or partner with someone who's going to like a show fields or a department store that is going to allow them to actually interact with customers, you know, based. Right. And I think you said it was Matt Alexander who had a great quote about just the storefront almost acting as a billboard. That was, yeah. Yeah. Um, Because Casper, they said in their filing that since 2016, they spent $422 million on marketing alone because the cost of customer acquisition is just getting so prohibitively high that. And he, that Matt Alexander, um, CEO of Neighborhood Goods was saying, people are getting sick of emails. Facebook is just noisy. And you can even, even think about passing a billboard probably does make more of an impression than those you know, pop-up ads online or something that you just want to get Yeah, and it's interesting in terms of, um, while this year has been a little tough for some of the digital folks and the unicorns, right? There were some questions around Casper with their IPO had to release all these numbers. Mm -hmm. Turns out they were not profitable in over a longer period of time than people (laughs) expected to see. So it, it, there is certainly a sense of, I wonder if that colored some of what people were saying at the show, or if it's really a recognition of, I'm going to forget the exact statistic, but the majority of purchasing is still happening offline. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of growth happening maybe in digital, but it doesn't mean that overall it's completely subsumed the retail space yet. Right. And Steve Barr from PwC actually had a great quote that he said, he said, I think this myth of the retail store is dead is very overstated. Bad retail will never do well. Right. Well, and then the question is, though, is will good e-commerce ever do well? Because it seems like Casper and a lot of DTC brands are doing well in quotes, but, you know, is good e-commerce profitable without some other way to not just distribute, but also market what you have. They're contending with a lot of complicated headwinds too, you know, cost of customer acquisition, cost of scaling, you know, maybe it works when they're small, but does it work if they get really big? You know, we've seen a lot of that happen. You know, Tom's Shoes was a big e-commerce brand early on. I mean, there's always a lot of specifics and fundamentals for particular stores, but they had a sort of sad story. Recently, you know, it's interesting to watch the earlier generation of digital brands age a bit, and that starts to influence maybe how people are looking at the current ones or the ones that are coming up. And my big takeaway from the show was less trend setting, perhaps, than the way you guys are observing. It was just something cool that I saw that was sort of intriguing. Um, I sat through a session about live commerce with a company called shop shops uh, and they had Shiseido, the beauty company with them as sort of a case study. So shop shops does live commerce, which is a combination of streaming video with e-commerce. The description I had to give, and this is, it's primarily big in China. Um, It has not seemed to gain traction here in the United States yet. Uh, Although someone was pointing out there are some folks here that are starting to do it. I think Amazon's been trying to push some of this streaming commerce, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit different. What Shop Shops does is a lot more like having an influencer filming a video in a store. You get a much more authentic feel. The Shop Shops founder 
was talking about that that's what the appeal is for the folks that buy through her site is that they trust the person. It feels like your friend is showing you cool jewelry. They've done beauty ones. Shiseido did something with their Laura Mercier brand or they had a makeup artist doing some makeup and showing this and it did pretty well for them as a test. Very sort of leading edge. You know, I don't know that we're talking about the struggles that e-commerce is having, never mind something like live commerce. But if you take this combination of online purchasing with the live streaming that is very popular with certain generations and in certain parts of the world, combine that with like the Instagram stories that's also growing, there's something interesting there. It was fascinating to watch these videos. The only analogy that I could come up with was it was like QVC, except it wasn't really anything like that because the old model of television selling isn't interactive. You can't comment. Uh, They may have added some of that functionality in recent years for some of their platforms, but the live commerce, there's, you know, people engaging on the screen and sending little emojis and reacting to things. Uh, It seemed pretty cool. So it's an exciting glimpse into one possibility for the future. I'm not sure that it's near term. So that's it for us today, I think. Uh, We wrapped up a long week. Lots of good stories, lots of cool stores. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Please rate, comment, subscribe, and we'll see you next time.